You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Korach depicts a brazen power grab during our newly formed nation's wilderness wanderings, but somehow managed to feel as resonant and relevant to today's headlines. A homiletical goldmine, if ever there was one. Memorably dubbed the Common Sense Rebellion Against Authority by Rav Soloveitchik, Korach's complaints against Moshe and Aaron in the desert became a template with which to understand the tensions between orthodoxy and the liberal branches of American Judaism in the 1950s and 60s. And the themes of class warfare, grievances against political and religious authority, and the power and challenge of reconciliation after revolution continue to haunt the imagination of the modern reader perhaps more than at any time in our collective history. Instead of focusing on Korach's claims, the crux of which are found in chapter 16, verse 3. Bikalu al Moshe al Haron v'yomru alehem rav lechem ki kol ha'ida kulam kedoshim v'sochem Adonai umadua tisnasu al kal Adonai. They gathered against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, It is too much for you. You take too much for yourself. For the entire assembly, all of them are holy, and Hashem is among them. Why do you exalt yourselves? over the congregation of Hashem. Half-truths that are always more dangerous than outright lies. Instead of this claim, I'd like to point to some of the details in the aftermath, or really the resolution, of the conflict itself. From the seeds of this cataclysmic series of events and its surprising denouement, we might learn the real source of authority and the true hope for reconciliation when conflict shatters a community. After Korach's egalitarian-inspired challenge, Moshe weakly falls on his face, but confidently claims, Yedaber el Korach ve'el kol adaso lemor, Boker ve'yoda Adonai, Eis asher lo ve'es ha-kodesh ve'hikri ve'lov, ve'es asher yivcharbo yakriv elov. He spoke to Korach and to his entire assembly, saying, In the morning, God will make known the one who is his own and the Holy One, and he will draw him close to himself. And whomever he will choose, he will draw close to himself. A few verses later, God himself responds. V'yadaber Adonai el Moshe ve'el Aaron lemar, Hibadlu mitocha eda hazos va'alchala osam karaga. Separate yourselves from amid this assembly, and I shall destroy them in an instant. And indeed, this is the prelude to that momentous, miraculous occurrence of the earth opening up the pi ha'aretz. Vayi kachaloso ledaber es koladvarim ha'ela v'tibaka ha'adama asher tachtehem. V'tiftach ha'aretz es piha v'tivla osam es batehem v'es kola adam asher lekorach v'es kola rechush. When Moses finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all the people who were with Korach and the entire wealth. They and all that was theirs descended alive to the pit. The earth covered them over and they were lost from among the congregation. But this is not the end of the story. Because in addition to the Pia'aretz, in addition to the earth opening up, a great fire consumes those that were holding the fire pans. A flame came forth from God and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. So first there is the opening of the earth, 
then there is the fire, and then a few verses later, a magefa, a plague, decimates the camp. And Aaron, the high priest, stands, and Aaron took the firepan and stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was checked. And yet, after the earth opens, and still another moment of destruction through the fire, and yet another form of decimation through the magefa, the plague, finally a fourth and decisive sign, a very different kind of sign, is called upon by God. And here we read in chapter 17, verses 20 through 23, Yedaber Moshe el Bnei Yisrael, v'yitnu elav kol nesiyem, matel anasi echad, matel anasi echad, l'veisabosam, shnei masar matos, umatei aron betoch matosam. Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and all their leaders gave him a staff for each leader, a staff for each leader according to their father's house, twelve staffs. And Aaron's staff was among their staffs. And Moses places these staffs into the tent of testimony, and lo and behold... In verse 23, On the next day, Moses came to the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron of the house of Levi had blossomed. It brought forth a blossom, sprouted a bud, and almonds ripened. What we see in essence is a rule for reconciliation and the decisive sign to firmly and finally end Korach's insurrection, it is not found in destruction, it's not found in decimation, it is found in beauty, in the blossoming of a staff, in the growth of almonds, in what is fecund, in what is organic, in what is natural, in what is growing, what is simply beautiful. Gregory Wolf, the Catholic writer and artist, wrote a book some 15 years ago called Beauty Will Save the World, Recovering the Human in an Ideological Age. And he writes that towards the end of his undergraduate days, he came across a passage in Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Nobel Lecture, which he found startling and even a bit disturbing. Solzhenitsyn begins his address on the nature and role of literature with a brief enigmatic quotation from Dostoevsky, Beauty will save the world. Beauty will save the world. Solzhenitsyn confesses that the phrase had puzzled and intrigued him for some time, and yet he told the distinguished audience at the Nobel Prize ceremony that he had come to believe that Dostoevsky was right. And Wolf continues, For a young college student possessed of a boundless confidence, in rational debate and political action, the implication that beauty alone could harbor such redemptive powers were unsettling, to say the least. It was the kind of idea one would expect of an Oscar Wilde or some other fin de siècle decadent. It seemed perilously close to a hedonistic endorsement of art for art's sake. What of truth and goodness, the other two transcendentals? And yet here were two great Russian novelists, known for their stern, prophetic, and intensely moral sensibilities as well as for their stark depictions of nihilism and human degradation, applauding the redemptive force of beauty. But the phrase stuck in my mind and found corroboration in my studies of the role of the imagination in the social order. Like Solzhenitsyn, I have been won over by Dostoevsky's wisdom. 
Whereas I once believed that the decadence of the West could only be turned around through politics and intellectual dialectics, I'm now convinced that authentic renewal can only emerge out of the imagined visions of the artist and the mystic. This does not mean that I've withdrawn into some anti-intellectual palace of art. Rather, it involves the conviction that politics and rhetoric are not autonomous forces, but are shaped by the pre-political roots of culture, myth, metaphor, and spiritual experience as recorded by the artist and the saint. And I think what Greg Wolf is echoing is really the upshot of Korach's insurrection and the final declaration of victory over this perilously dangerous egalitarian theme of Korach. It is that one could argue, one could show great forces of power, miraculous forms of nature going beyond nature and destroying the enemy, crushing the insurrection. But no, it is not in the earth opening up, it is not in the fire, it is not in the plague, but it is in the beauty of the staffs sprouting sprouts and almonds that Moshe Aaron's truth is vindicated. It's not in the destructive, but it is always in the constructive that we ultimately bring the truth into the light of day. Yuval Levin, the great policymaker and intellectual of the right, writes in his 2017 book, The Fractured Republic, Renewing America's Social Contract in the Age of Individualism, that there are temptations on the right and temptations on the left. One of the temptations on the right is to think that one could just deconstruct, one could negate the rival's point of view, but that ultimately that leaves our people and especially our youth hollow and sterile. They're not satisfied with the negative, with the destructive or the deconstructive moment. They want something constructive. They want an argument that is built on a beautiful worldview, on a worldview that's comprehensive, that makes arguments and claims for the good of something. Not just good, but beautiful. I think that is what the message of Korach's insurrection and the conclusion, the ultimate resolution, teaches us. In the words of Father Julian Caron, the theologian and leader of the lay movement Communion and Liberation, founded by that great educator, Luigi Gisani, we need a disarming beauty in our world today. When we find rival factions on the streets, on the airwaves, in our journalism, in our social media, we need to see not just the destructive and the deconstructive, but we need to see a constructive argument, why something is beautiful, why the worldview, the sense of human personhood, the views of sexuality, the views of nationhood and peoplehood, why they're just not negative slogans or criticizing a one-world vision, but are building a vision that is both good and beautiful. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 